It is definitely good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning and uh, to be able to join with you in hearing uh, the, uh, the reading and the preaching of the word. And so to that end, if you would please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews. This morning's message comes to us from verses 1 through 10 of chapter 10. So let's turn there in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would uh, unstop our ears for so much of the world's noise enters therein, or sometimes it's even uh, the noise that we generate from our own restless hearts. And so we pray that you would open our ears, that we might hear your word, that you would speak calming truths to our hearts that you would give unto us peace in the midst of the chaos of life, that you would relieve us from the accusations of the accuser, O Lord, in his efforts to try to rob us of our uh, peace and of the tranquility that we have that comes only through Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that you would speak words that fill our hearts with joy, with thanksgiving, and that in turn, we would desire to worship and praise you for the wonderful gift that you have given us in Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. It was St. Augustine, who's a theologian from the early church who lived in the 4th and 5th century, who once explained the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. He said that what is hidden in the Old is revealed in the New, and what is revealed in the new is hidden in the old. Now, as, as helpful and as useful and as impactful as this statement is, despite its clarity and its utility, many within the history of the church have attempted to separate the Old and New Testaments. 
they have in the contemporary period often ignored the Old Testament and focused exclusively upon the New. Or conversely, in this particular case, what the recipients of the book of Hebrews were trying to do is, in a sense, ignore the New Testament and focus exclusively upon the Old. But wrapped up in Augustine's statement, the Old Testament is revealed in the New, or conversely, the New is hidden in the Old, is the idea that the two Testaments are ultimately inseparable. Uh, We can conceive of the two Testaments perhaps in terms of the way that we would relate a question to an answer. And even if you start with the answer, uh, like on Jeopardy, you still need the question in order to be able to understand the significance of the answer. You know, if I told you simply 10,000, you might say, well, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing to say until I said, uh, what's the question? And if I said, how many dollars I'm going to give you after the service? Well, then all of a sudden that answer takes on a whole new significance. You can't appreciate the answer unless you really know what the question is. And so this is the problem is that these, these New Testament Jewish Christians were trying to ignore the answer and go back to the question as if the question in and of itself was sufficient. Or to put it in the terms here of Hebrews chapter 10, to explain the relationship between an Old and New Testament is to talk about it in terms of shadow and reality. In other words, when you you look upon a shadow, you recognize that it bears some sort of resemblance to what the reality is, whether it's a building, whether it's a pole, or whether it's a human being that casts a shadow. And you recognize, okay, I see something of what that thing is like. But it's not until you actually look upon the pole or you look upon the person or the building that is casting the shadow that you can begin to have a complete and fuller appreciation as to the thing that you're actually beholding. Well, this is the way that the Old Testament relates to the New, and this is what the author locks onto when he says that these Old Testament sacrifices ultimately were but a shadow that were supposed to point forward to the reality of Jesus and his once-for-all perfect sacrifice. And so what the new, these New Testament Jewish Christians were trying to do where they were ignoring the reality or thinking that they could somehow push it aside and that the shadow in and of itself was sufficient for their salvation. And so this, of course, is basically unthinkable. And so this is why the, uh, the author here of the letter wants us to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or, or more specifically, these Old Testament sacrifices, why did God institute them? What did they actually accomplish? And then by comparison, and we can say by contrast, what it is that Christ actually accomplishes through his once for all sacrifice. And so we'll look at this by first seeing what the author has to say about the shadows of the Old Testament. Second, we'll see what he has to say about the reality the fulfillment of these shadows in the person and work of Christ. 
And then third and finally, we want to reflect upon what he has to say about the fact that Christ's sacrifice and not the sacrifice of animals perfects us, makes us whole, redeems us, and saves us from sin. So let's turn the clock back, if only for the sake of discussion, and let's look at the shadows of the Old Testament. And so in the opening four verses of this 10th chapter, the author once again wants to take us back to the Old Testament sacrifices, and he wants us to reflect upon, especially, say, days like the Day of Atonement. And he highlights several factors about the Old Testament sacrifices. He says in verse 1 that they were continually offered every year. Verse 3, they were a continual reminder of sins every year. In other words, if you wanted to draw near unto Christ through uh, the temple or through the tabernacle, you regularly had to offer sacrifices. There was no other way to do so. You had to offer these sacrifices on a daily basis. There was no day on which you were free from sin. I mean, this is something that is sometimes perhaps difficult for us to perceive. And I think it's ultimately because we're not actually tuned in sufficiently enough to the law of God. You know, it's like if you want to understand the depths of the requirements of the law of God, reflect, for example, upon what the larger catechism has to say about the nature of the law, both in what it requires as well as what it forbids. And you see these massive lists of things. You know, we don't realize it, but even from the moment that we get up, when we don't, aren't even conscious of the fact that we are perhaps engaged in some sort of sin, we're, we're, we're doing it. You know, by the time you make it down to breakfast, you've probably racked up a number of sins. You know, sometimes you just have to throw the blanket prayer over all of that activity and say, Lord, I know that I'm not even aware of what I've done, but please forgive me from, for all of my shortcomings. Well, in this case, the regular and consistent and continual offering of sin every single day, morning and evening, was a, was a reminder of that fact that we are sin factories in that sense, we can say. And so there, this was a constant reminder to the, to the Israelites, uh, and especially on that annual day of atonement. And this is something that Jewish people to this day still practice. I can remember being in high school, and I lived in a community where there was a significant Jewish population. And every fall on the annual day, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the, the, the good third of the school was gone uh, because they were observing this holy day. They were celebrating the yearly reminder of their need for the forgiveness of sins. And so the author makes this point, therefore, in verse 2 about the animal sacrifices. He says, otherwise... Would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? What he's saying here is he says, look, if these actual sacrifices could have remedied the problem of sin, don't you think they would have come to a conclusion? 
They would have offered the requisite number of sacrifices, whatever it was. They would have paid their debt, and then they would have been able to cease the sacrifices. And so the point that the author makes is this very blunt assessment in verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Not possible. This is why they had to continually be offered. But yet the question then comes to mind, well, wait a minute. If they were ultimately inefficient and incapable of removing sins, then why on earth would God ever have them continually offer them? What's the point? Why offer these sacrifices if they're ultimately ineffective? The answer to this is that the sacrifices in and of themselves were incapable of removing the guilt and the stain of sin. And they were ineffective for two chief reasons. First, it's because the animals didn't voluntarily offer themselves. In other words, the sinner takes the animal and offers the animal. The animal's not volunteering for any of this. And what that animal was doing was essentially standing in the place of the sinner. But the animal was standing involuntarily so. I mean, if we were able to ask the animal, hey, would you be willing to offer yourself and sacrifice? I suspect that all of them would have said, yeah, no, that's a hard pass. I'd rather not. Just let me go out into the field and and chew the cud. I'll be happy out there. You know, think, for example, of Abraham's ram with its horns caught in the bramble. The fact that it was caught meant that it was not ready to be sacrificed voluntarily. But secondly, we can say that the sacrifices were only effective insofar as they were temporary placeholders that pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ. In other words, as these Old Testament worshipers would bring forth the sacrifice, seeking the forgiveness of their sins, it was a reminder first and foremost to go to God seeking his forgiveness, seeking his mercy, it was a reminder that the sinner himself was supposed to be under this type of judgment, and therefore that the worshiper would then ultimately look to God's promises in Christ to bring about the forgiveness of his sins or her sins. And so these sacrifices are just placeholders. They're placeholders. They're supposed to point us to Christ, which brings us to our second point. In other words, that the repetition of these sacrifices was a continual reminder, you need Jesus. You need Christ. And so he says now here in verses 5 and 6, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Now here the the author is drawing from Psalm chapter 40 and David's words about what he truly, what God truly desires. God was essentially saying from the outset, look, the sacrifices are not what I want. 
These sacrifices are supposed to be indicative of a heart that is humble and contrite. The sacrifices are supposed to reveal that you're not looking to yourself, but that you're looking to my promises. You know, this is the very point, for example, that the the, the minor prophets such as Micah pointed out as he tried to bring Israel to repentance when he says in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and following, when he says, what am I supposed to bring to the Lord? With what shall I bow down? Will the Lord be pleased if I brought him a thousand rams with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I offer up the firstborn for my sins? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And what does the prophet say to all of these questions when he says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is what the sacrifices are supposed to elicit. But what had happened is that so much of Israel's worship had essentially devolved into a formalism. Is this what I have to do? I'll go through the motions. I'll do it. Am I clear? Okay, let me go about my way. You know, think about it. If, if this is how we handled, uh, say, anniversary presents. You know, your wedding anniversary comes up. You go and you tell your wife, all right. It's our anniversary, check. Um, I'm supposed to give you a gift, check. You hand over the gift, check. And then you tell your wife, are we done? Can I go on my way? I suspect that, you know, I could be wrong here, but I don't think that that would go over too well. It's not just about going through the motions and checking the boxes. The gift in the anniversary present is supposed to be but a reflection, a token of what lies within the heart of the spouse, whether it's the husband to wife or wife to husband. Well, if this is the way it works in terms of a human relationship, how then is it supposed to work in terms of our relationship with the one true living God? You know, but by contrast, notice how... In Psalm 40, which is quoted there in verses 5 and 6, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In other words, first, unlike the animal sacrifices, which were given, uh, you know, by force in the sense that the animal did not volunteer, the animal was taken involuntarily, Jesus is highlighting the fact that he voluntarily stood in the breach, that he voluntarily offered himself in sacrifice for his people. And then again, quoting from Psalm 40, the author places David's words in Christ's mouth when he says in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In other words, what is it that God has desired all along but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him? And so Jesus is saying, not only do I voluntarily do this and offer myself in your place, but you, O Lord, to you, O Lord, I obey your will. O Father, I will obey every single command that you give because that is ultimately what you desire. 
You know, think of Jesus's statements throughout his ministry and how often it goes back to the will of God. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, where John the Baptist said, hey, uh, I'm going to baptize you. No, I, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, let it be so now for the fulfilling of all righteousness. In other words, my father has given me a command. Let's fulfill it. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17? I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He's come to fulfill the law. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In other words, as it's written of me in the law, I've come to do it. John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Think of all of redemptive history and all of the people that have gone before Christ and all of the different ways in which they have disobeyed God. Whether it's Adam in the garden, God tells Adam in the garden, I give you of every tree from which you can eat except for one. And instead of focusing upon the many, many trees that God has given him, Adam focused upon the single one tree that he could not have. And he sinned. Think of all the blessings that Israel had. God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. God fed them in the wilderness. God's presence Personal presence led and guided them, and yet the people continually rebelled. Think of David. God plucked David out from the shepherd's fold, and he elevated him to the highest of all of the positions in Israel. He gave him uh, military victories. Uh, he blessed him and his uh, kingship over all of Israel, and yet David said, it's not enough. I want what I cannot have. And he committed murder and adultery. But yet in contrast to all of these who have gone before, Jesus was the spotless lamb, not merely because he was sinless, but also because he was and is righteous. In other words, Christ did not simply not violate the law. Rather, Christ not only did not sin, but he fulfilled the law. He was positively righteous. Again, go back and look at the larger catechism and see all of the ways in which we are forbidden from violating the law. And then see all of the ways in which we're required to fulfill it. So, for example, when it says, thou shalt not commit adultery... It doesn't mean just merely avoiding adultery. It means sacrificially loving your spouse. And yet Jesus is the one who does not break the law. Moreover, he fulfills it. Again, as, he, as, a, as the author here quotes, David is saying, it is written of me in the scroll of the book. These are the words, I think, that refers ultimately to the entirety of the Old Testament. It's the entirety of the Old Testament, whether we're talking about the law, whether we're talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. What is it that Jesus said to the religious leaders when he said, Moses wrote about me? 
And in fact, this is, of course, what informs Jesus's actions when there he was in the synagogue in Luke chapter four, and he takes the scroll of the book and he read from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61, and he rolled up the scroll and then sat down and the eyes of the entire synagogue were focused upon him. And Jesus says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. All of the Old Testament points forward to him. In other words, all of the Old Testament was building and building until it came to the revelation of God in Christ. It's like just the other night we were watching a movie with the kids and my daughter was getting anxious about what was going on in the movie. And my wife said, it's okay. It's building tension. It's going to be resolved. I promise you in just the next minute or two, just be patient. That means it's just like that. The Old Testament was building in its tension and it was coming to fruition all in the person and work of Christ. While the following analogies are imperfect for for one to say, I want to turn away from Christ and I want to go back to the Old Testament is like saying, I'm not interested in the movie. I want to just look at the trailer. That's all I need, just the trailer. Or it's looking at the completed building and saying, you know what, Uh, you can keep the building. All I need is the blueprints. Let me just look at the blueprints. That'll be fine. This is, it's unthinkable. Why would you have the blueprints and then have the building? And then once you see the fulfillment of those blueprints, would you want to turn back and say, let me ignore the building? Why, if, you know, you've seen the trailer and then you see the movie and let's, for the sake of discussion, it's a fantastic and amazing piece of cinematic art. And yet you say, no, never mind, let me turn away from it. Let alone, why would you look at all of these Old Testament sacrifices and the Old Testament economy and think, "I, I, I don't need Christ. I don't need the person to whom all of these things point. I'll just simply go back. And this brings us to our third and final point as to why it's so unthinkable when it talks about, when the author talks about the fact that what it is that Christ's sacrifice actually accomplishes. You know, the fact that Christ has come, that he suffered the curse of the law and that he's perfectly fulfilled it means that we can take down the scaffolding of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's no longer necessary. Verses 8 and 9, when he said above, you have, desired, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In the light of Christ's completed work, everything in the Old Testament sacrificial system is done away with. It's unnecessary. It's obsolete. We no longer live in the shadows of the Old Testament, but walk in the bright sun of the light of God's revelation in Christ. Why would we therefore want to go back to the shadows when Christ, the reality, is here? And note, do not underestimate the importance of the contrast, but the difference between the animal sacrifices and Christ's sacrifice. Here in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 10 And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
It's impossible for the animal sacrifices to take away sins. We have been sanctified by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. You know, to me, it's always a point of, of, of sadness and even perhaps mourning when I hear of, of sincere Christians. They look at the real estate that we call Israel today in the Middle East, and they lament the fact that the temple site, the location of the Old Testament temple, has now got a Muslim holy site on it, the Dome of the Rock, and that the only thing that, that remains of that Old Testament temple is the Wailing Wall. And I've heard some Christians say, oh, wouldn't it be great to be able to see the Dome of the Rock raised uh, because it's, it, it's the symbol of a false religion and then for the temple to be rebuilt. And I say, I rejoice in the fact that the Dome of the Rock is there keeping the Israelites from rebuilding the temple. It's not because I think that we should have Muslim holy sites, but I think it's God's way of saying, never, ever again will sacrifices be offered on this site because of the once for all perfect sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ. And so much so as I'm going to put a Muslim holy site on it to keep anybody from rebuilding on this location. We are holy in Christ. And when God looks upon us, he does not see our sin, but he only sees the perfect righteousness and holiness of Jesus. That which we have received, not only through Christ's perfect law giving, I have come to do your will, but also by his perfect sacrifice once for all. That's why this Lord's Supper that is before us is not a sacrifice. As the Roman Catholics teach, this is rather a reminder. It is, uh, it, is, it is a signpost that points us to the once for all accomplished work of Jesus, his once for all completed sacrifice on our behalf. And so this is why the author of Hebrews says it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable to go back and even deadly. When we look at the scriptures, we always need to remember that the Old and New Testaments can never be separated because they both belong together. And when we see them together, we see promise in the Old Testament and fulfillment in the New. The great Old Testament question is how can we as sinners stand in God's presence? And it's been answered by the New Testament with that resounding response of through the perfect obedience and suffering of Jesus. And so in the face of our own failures and sins and shortcomings, we have to remember that the only place that we can flee for safety is to the embassy of Christ. When we think of Christ's perfect sacrifice, we should always ask ourselves, I think, two questions. Two questions. Why did Christ die is the first. Why did Christ die? We can say because he paid the penalty for the broken law, both Adam's original sins and for my own personal sins. But right on the heels of that, we should also ask the question, why did Christ live? And he lived to give us the perfect fulfillment of the law so that when, Jesus, when God looks upon us and we are united to Christ by faith, 
He sees one who has perfectly fulfilled the law, who is in perfect conformity to the law, not merely sinless, but rather also righteous. And he looks upon us in this manner because Christ has fulfilled the law. In the words of Isaac Watts, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine, while like a penitent I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burdens thou didst bear when hanging on the cursed tree and knows her guilt was there. Believing we rejoice to see the curse remove, we bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding love. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have given unto us that perfect sacrifice that takes away all of our sin. And that not only takes away the stain and guilt of sin, but also fills up our ledger with his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law. We pray, O Lord, that you would keep us away from formalism, that we would not simply go through the motions when we come to worship or when we pray or when we seek the forgiveness of our sins. Rather, O Lord, that you would truly give unto us contrite hearts, that we would, in the words of Micah, walk humbly before you, We pray, O Lord, that you would give unto us a sense and a faith and a knowledge of the perfect righteousness of Christ and that we would know that we stand perfectly righteous in your sight and that with the knowledge of this righteousness, O Lord, as well as the indwelling power and presence of your spirit, you would enable us, again in the words of Micah, to do justice and to love kindness so that in all of our ways, we would walk humbly before you. We give thanks, therefore, for the perfect obedience and suffering of Christ, apart from which we would have no hope. And we pray, O Lord, that in times of sin, we would flee only to him, that in times of victory, we would give him the credit, that in times of doubt, O Lord, we would cling fast to the perfect work of Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.